0: So today is an exciting day because the papers are due, because <laughs> uh, the midterm uh, is soon, but most of all because we're finishing up our talk on the Merovingians. Uh, questions, comments, cat names? So <laughs> the Merovingians, remember that the reason we're studying them as, is as an example of barbarian kingship, barbarian states and the post-Roman world. Post-Roman, meaning that the Roman Empire is gone, but the society is not completely uh, severed. Its connections with the Roman tradition are not severed. (coughs) This is most obvious in the Church and the survival of Latin learning bishops, Christianity. Literacy. But even though we seem to be in an environment of rather primitive uh, and even, we could use the word loosely, barbarian kings, uh, I hope that uh, we'll see that within Gregory's narrative there is evidence of a kind of royal administration and a certain sense of purpose. We are entering a period in which we have to start asking what held society together. This becomes a question when two things start to fail. One is the government, where it's really not clear that there is a government other than powerful people plundering less powerful people. And the other factor is when the people themselves don't really believe that there is any force holding their society together, anything that they unconsciously give deference to. So we're all familiar with what are called now failed states, that is, polities that have an official existence but that cannot seem to keep the most basic form of order within their borders, whatever those borders may be. So uh, unfortunate states like Somalia, Or no longer but uh, 10 years ago, Liberia, Sierra Leone were examples of failed states. And this is a phenomenon that has grown in the contemporary world. In the Middle Ages, and here we're talking about the period from the collapse of Roman authority in the West in the fifth century until um, at least the twelfth century, There are various kinds of societies that are held together. They are not as anarchic as Somalia, uh, actually. But they are not held together by government in the sense that we understand it. They are held together partly by informal social networks and ties, things like kinship, family, private vengeance, religion. But by having to ask the question, what holds society together, you are already making a kind of statement about the sort of society you're talking about. I would say that the United States has, for most of its history, been a polity in which this kind of question didn't have to be asked. It's not that people loved the government, or even particularly deferred to it, but that in their everyday life, in their everyday gestures, and in their everyday assumptions, they assumed that they were protected. They normally did not have to go out with a weapon in order to feel that they would not be robbed. There are exceptional communities in the, uh, uh, where that's not been true. But generally speaking, you could assume that uh, uh, the police or the police forces intimidated uh, criminals or potential evildoers. You would, you know, send your bills in by mail, assuming that they would arrive, that a government agency would take care of the transport of them. You might try not to pay as much taxes as you perhaps owed, but you wouldn't really try to just be under the radar of the government, because you would assume that you couldn't do that. You would have to make some kind of tax payment. And on and on, educating your children, uh, signing up for Social Security, um, you know, being part of a community. The mark of privilege, then, historically, is not having to think about the ties that hold your society together. If you had to come up with a standard with which to measure human happiness, that might not be such a bad one. Now, there are other forms of human happiness, total independence. The idea of, you know, the person who uh, lives out somewhere on a farm and is completely self-sufficient, has all of the food that they need, either that they catch or cultivate, uh, lives in some kind of wonderful climate in which the food grows on trees dreams of authors uh, of the nineteenth century in Europe and America about the South Sea Islanders. Uh, So we have in our imagination the idea of living a blissful life without any particular social ties or only the most uh, (laughs) casual ones. But I think we all know that usually um, such an existence, when it in fact exists at all, is an invitation for someone else to plunder it and to steal it. Part of the reason for social ties is company. Part of the reason for social ties is protection. So in asking what held barbarian societies together, we're asking something that's more than just a banal (coughs) question of medieval sociology. We're asking a question about the fundamental nature of a society that is um, not so unsuccessful as people think. You know, again, nobody wakes up in 560 A.D. saying how unfortunate it is that they're alive in the Dark Ages. They didn't call it the Dark Ages. They didn't think it was the Dark Ages, um, and. Uh, wasn't the Dark Ages, as I hope to show. Now, Gregory of Tours is a great source because he gives a lot of very miscellaneous information. He's perhaps a, a source who likes violence, though. He likes <coughs> violence for reasons we were talking about last week. He wants to show that on the one hand, the life of human beings is terrible and full of outrage and violence, but that it is redeemed by God's solicitude, and that those people. Who recognize God's power as manifested through bishops, saints, the rites of the church will, if not prosper always in this life, at least receive uh, uh, a reward that is commensurate with their loyalty to God. Gregory is a pessimist. One of the reasons, <coughs> one of the themes that guides this work, I was going to say one of the reasons he wrote this work, but I don't want to kind of venture that far out. One of the aspects that unites this work is a sense of the decline of the Franks from the model, Clovis, to the fools that he feels he has to deal with, like Chilperic. Three generations, the generation of Clovis, the generation of Clovis's sons, the generation of Clovis's grandsons, each one worse than the one before it. So if he grudgingly acknowledged that the sons of Clovis fulfilled, in some sense, a mission in accord with God's plan, (coughs) he was much more clearly hostile to this third generation of Merovingian leaders. He says at one point, um, in a uh, part that is not in Murray, to this day one is still amazed and astonished at the disasters which befell these people. And I think I mentioned this little passage before. We can only contrast how their forefathers used to behave and how they themselves are behaving today. So he is scolding the current generation and exalting the older ways. He is scolding them for their violence, but what about the fact that, as we emphasized, Clovis was violent. What he's really scolding them for then is not violence as such, but violence channeled to unproductive ends. Violence is inevitable in Gregory's world. Violence in defense of the true faith is not only acceptable, but necessary in order to defend that. And Gregory's interest, as I hope I'll show, in The true faith is not just a defense (coughs) of Christianity as a religion, but Christianity as the thing that holds society together. If you asked Gregory what holds society together, he would give some kind of answer on the order of the bishops, the saints, the supernatural, the church. And then if you said, well, what is the role of the king in this? It's basically to terrorize people to make sure that um, the mere threat of divine vengeance is backed up by threats of a more immediate sort. Throughout the history of the Franks, although not excerpted so much in the edition we're using, there are examples of people who hold God, Saint Martin, or the bishop, or some other saint in contempt, and who pay for it often with their lives. So in Gregory's official presentation of events, any defiance of God is met with a thunderbolt. But he's not actually a fool. I know in the dark moments of 2 AM reading Gregory, that thought may have crossed your mind. And, and I know that you repressed it very quickly. Um, and, uh, it's evil of me even to raise it. But lest you think that he's just a credulous <laughs> guy who lived in the sixth century AD and whatever, he uh, is perceptive, and he understands that most people, most of the time, thunderbolts of God notwithstanding, need something a little more immediate to whip them into shape, that is, to follow uh, uh, a kind of basic civil order. And that is supposed to be the ruler. So it's fine for the ruler to be violent. And it's even okay if some people get caught in the jaws of the state, if we can call it that, or let's say the jaws of the king, who should not have been punished. But look (coughs) at the people he's dealing with. He's dealing with people who are violent as well as kind of silly and uh, quixotic. He has this little conversation with um, uh, Chilperic that you know, reminds one of pseudo-learned people, uh, bloodthirsty dictators with pseudo-learning on the order of the uh, Muammar Gaddafi, you know, people, people who, who sort of study some stuff and decide that they're experts on it because they're able to terrorize their population. So um, Chilperic issued a circular, this is on page 111. A circular to the effect that the Holy Trinity was to refer not to distinct persons but only God. Um, that it's unseemly for God to be called a person like a mortal of, the f- of flesh and blood. He also declared that the Father is the same as the Son, and the Holy Spirit is the same as the Father and the Son. Well, you know, people had died and they certainly had written huge controversial works and had lots of councils over this issue. Uh, this is not right. Uh, this nobody actually really <laughs> believes this in Christianity. This is how it appeared to the prophets and patriarchs, he said, and this is how the law itself proclaimed him, meaning Christ. And he then tells Gregory, "Okay, this is the law I want you and the other members of the Church to believe. And Gregory said, give up this false belief. You must observe the doctrines passed on to us by other teachers of the Church who followed in the footsteps of the apostles, the teaching furnished by Hilary and Eusebius, and the confession you yourself made At baptism. He's got to say this. I mean, he is very courageous to say this to the king. But the king, you know, it it is like somebody uh, who is extremely powerful denying very basic scientific facts. Uh, um, Stalin tried to impose the biological theories of Lysenko, uh, which basically went against. the consensus of uh, uh, evolutionary biology at the time. Um, So this kind of pseudo-learning is uh, a feature of people who, since they're being acclaimed as geniuses and as leaders, assume that their expertise carries over into all sorts of fields. Well, the king grows angry. He says, it's quite obvious that I regard Hillary and Eusebius as my bitterest opponents on this issue. Uh, not only have Saints Hilary and Eusebius been dead for years, but they're saints. They're theologians. You know, it would be like me saying, well, obviously, uh, Charlemagne and Clovis are my enemies. And it's a, a statement that is ridiculous. Uh, and um, note Gregory's response. It would suit you better to watch out that you do not make God or his saints angry. And that could really serve as one of the themes of the entire work. For you should know that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all distinct in person." And then he goes on to the theological um, uh, justification. And then the king's response is, I'm going to find some people smarter than you are. And Gregory says, such a person will not be smarter, but an idiot. Anyone who wants to follow what you propose would be an idiot. Grinding his teeth at this response, he said, no more. And then another uh, a visit, uh, another bishop is consulted. Uh, so the king gives this up. And then he starts writing a treatise on the alphabet and, and wants to add some letters and uh, tells the teachers that the educational system needs to be modified to include these letters. Well, I go into this digression to show you first of all, uh, Chilperic actually is literate, he is actually educated. He's at least educated enough to have half baked ideas. Uh, And that's more than some kings of this time and later will be. He tried writing poetry as well. He also tried to depose Gregory as bishop, which is in, in, in some later books. Who are these people then? What is the basis of their power? The kingship is in large measure based on inherited status. The Merovingian family had an aura of sacredness and prestige that made it impossible to conceive of anybody not of their bloodline ruling. This power is partly the prestige of Clovis, who is seen as really the father of his people, bringing them into what would become France, or the land of the Franks, and converting to Christianity. But a lot of the prestige is what might be called pre-Christian, the long hair, the riding around in carts, four-wheeled carts. And we've seen that the long hair is quite crucial. Once it's cut in a humiliating manner, the representative of the family loses some crucial kind of Prestige Remember that choice pretended to, to queen Clotilda the scissors or the sword? Do you want your grandchildren scalped or you know at least given a uh, military uh, haircut or uh, actually a monastic haircut in this context or, or do you want them killed? and she's so angry at this that she in fact says killed. That shows you at least the uh, um, humiliation that is involved in this haircutting. These kings also practice something on the order of polygamy. They are Christians, but they are still tribal leaders in a society in which the possession of mm, women, in the plural, is a sign of status. One passage that describes a number of different things uh, uh, fairly usefully um, is on page 58. And this is the marriage. And again, it seems random when you're reading through it, but then that's the point of the lectures is to highlight the seemingly random, isn't it? On page 58, Chilperic's wives, Chilperic asks for Brunhild, this other Visigothic queen of one of his brothers, asks for the hand of her sister, Galswinth, although he already had several wives. Okay, so he promises the envoy he will put away the other wives, he will renounce them, and he will be married only to Galswynth. and so with these assurances, her father sent his daughter, as he had sent the first, along with a great deal of wealth." This is what's called a dowry, D-O-W-R-Y, a payment made uh, by the bride's family to the groom. When she came to King Chilperic, she was received with great honor and made his wife. And for the time being, his love for her was considerable, for she had brought great treasure. OK, it's not uh, you know, uh, a we both like horseback riding kind of relationship, <laughs> although they probably did. <laughs> but because of his love for Fredegund, who is another wife, a low-status wife, a wife who didn't bring him much money, but who was mesmerizing, or beautiful, or certainly had a hold over him. Because of his love for Fredegund, whom he had before, a disgraceful conflict arose to divide them. Galswynth had already been converted to the Catholic Creed, that is, she had been a Visigothic princess raised as an Aryan. She's now been converted. She complained to the king of the wrongs she constantly had to endure, and said that he had no respect for her. Finally, she asked him to give her her freedom to return to her native land if she left the treasures that she had brought him, which seems like a reasonable deal. But he made up various excuses. He mollified her with sweet words. And in the end, he had her strangled by a slave, and he himself found the corpse on the bed. Why didn't he just let her go, keeping the treasure? Um, Humiliating, probably. It's Better to kill her. Uh, uh, Why didn't he do what he said he did? You know, he's a barbarian ruler. After her death, God revealed a great sign of his power. A lamp burned before her tomb, suspended by a cord. Without anyone touching it, the cord broke, and the lamp fell to the pavement. The hard pavement gave way before it, and the lamp, as if it had landed on some kind of soft substance, was buried in the middle and not at all broken. To those who saw it, this did not happen without a great miracle. Well, as miracles go in Gregory Tours, this is pretty pedestrian, you know, freak accident. The lamp breaks, uh, pu- the exterior breaks, but the, 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 f- the actual lamp part does not. But it is a sign in Gregory, and these things don't happen at random uh, in Gregory. The king wept over the body and then, after a few days, took Fredigen back again as his wife. When he did this, his brothers attributed Galswent's killing to his orders and toppled him from power. Uh, The editor points out that probably they didn't, actually, Uh, this is a little bit too pat, and it may be a case of Gregory arranging the world so that the evil get punished uh, in ways that they ought to, rather than in the ways that they do or don't. But nevertheless, the portrait is of a um, polygamous king, uh, a king who uh, accumulates treasure a king who is unscrupulous enough to kill his wife, Uh, does not seem to hide it very much, is, however, um, vengeance is taken on him, both by supernatural powers and by natural forces. So in talking about the basis of kingship, we have blood, and then war leadership. I have tried not to overemphasize the violence of this society, but it is a society in which war leadership is the major, one of two major criteria of political leadership, the other being spiritual leadership that we're going to talk about towards the end of the lecture. The loyalty of the king's entourage was based on his ability to reward them with plunder. Remember that King Clothar goes out to fight the Saxons, but the Saxons actually uh, give him a good deal and offer to give up a lot of their territory. And he says to his men, I think this is a reasonable thing, the Saxons are pretty well armed, they're, they're willing to negotiate with us. This is on pages 5051. But the men won't accept that. They haven't come on this military expedition for political reasons. They want plunder. And so they force him. They threaten to kill him if he doesn't lead them into battle. So if, in certain respects, we're back to the situation of Clovis. On the one hand, he seems very powerful. On the other hand, he seems intimidated by his followers. And this is a accurate picture of the position of rulership at this time. The king has to reward his followers, because they're not following him for reasons of abstract political loyalty. They're not Merovingian patriots. They don't have a national anthem. They don't have a flag. They have a Pledge of Allegiance, but it's a private Pledge of Allegiance of warrior to warrior. He has two ways of rewarding them, plunder or land. He can't pay them a salary because the economy does not produce revenue in quite this way. It, it, It does, but it doesn't produce enough to reward soldiers in the way they want to be. Therefore, a successful leader is one who leads his troops into victory in battle. If he doesn't expand his possessions, if he doesn't lead them successfully, he's going to have to start giving away lands that belong to the king or to the state, if we can call it that. And once he starts doing that, he's going to start having an erosion of his own revenue to the weakening of his dynasty and his power. For the time being, in the world of Gregory of Tours, the kings are wealthy. Um, there is a, uh, a description of an extraordinary dowry sent with uh, the, a princess named Rigunth, uh, beyond the uh, page assignments uh, that, you, um, uh, uh, that you read. And, um, Um, There was so much stuff that it took fifty wagons to carry the gold and silver and other ornaments. The Franks offered many gifts, some giving gold, some silver, many giving horses and most garments. The uh, mother of uh, uh, the princess brought so much gold and silver and garments that when the king saw it, he thought he was left with nothing. You know, ha, ha, ha. In fact, uh, the quantities of gold silver, silks, and other fine fabrics are quite impressive. These kings are very wealthy. And they're wealthy because of plunder, but also because of taxes. If you read Gregory carefully, you will see that the kings are collecting taxes. In order to collect taxes, you've got to have some sort of records. You've got to know where people are. You've got to have a kind of register of property. I'm distinguishing taxes from plunder. You can plunder your own people. That is, you can just ride around and, and take cattle that happen to be passing by, or you know, burn people's farms, or shake them down, you know, uh, threaten to cut off their ears if they don't cough up uh, uh, a certain amount of uh, uh, money and treasure. The problem with that is, of course, you start killing your own economy, and even barbarian kings recognize that. But but they do then have a kind of um, uh, administration. And here, again, we have an interesting interaction of what might be called the, um, the practical and the superstitious. The death of Chilperic's sons by dysentery, described on page 105. There's a serious epidemic. The epidemic is, of course, announced by portents. Whoever heard of an d- epidemic disease that wasn't preceded by comets or eclipses or you know uh, heavenly phenomena? While the kings were quarreling again, dysentery affected nearly all of Gaul. High fever with vomiting, extreme pain in the kidneys, headaches and neck pain. Saffron-colored or even green vomit. Uh, some people thought it was a secret poison, blah, blah, blah. Um, It affected children. We lost children so sweet and dear to us, whom we sat on our laps or carried in our arms and nourished with such care. Um, (coughs) Chilperic's younger son became sick. When they saw that the end was near, they baptized him. He was doing a little better when his older brother named Clodebert was stricken by the same disease. Now these are the children of Fredegund the lower status but extremely powerful concubine, wife, whatever you want to call her. And Fredegun, seeing that they were in danger of death, became repentant. And she says, for a long time the divine goodness has endured our evil doing. Often it has rebuked us with fevers and other afflictions, and repentance did not follow. Look, now we are losing our sons. The tears of the poor, the laments of widows, and the sighs of orphans are killing them. We are left without a reason for gathering up anything. We pile up riches and do not know for whom we gather it. Our treasury will be left without an owner, full of plunder and curses. Where are our storehouses, Were our storehouses not already overflowing with wine? Were our barns not already full of grain? Were our treasuries not laden with gold, silver, precious stones, necklaces, and the rest of the trappings of emperors. Look, we are losing what we held to be even more beautiful. Now, please, come let us burn all the unjust registers. In other words, let's burn the tax registers. Let's burn the records we have of who owes what. And let what was sufficient for your father, King Clothar, be sufficient for us. And then she ordered, brought forward the registers that Marcus, we don't know who he is, had delivered from her cities. She had them thrown in the fire and then turned to the king, who's not eager to have his registers burned. Uh, But finally he does. And they stop future assessments. And the kids die anyway. After this, King Chilperic was generous to cathedrals, basilicas, and the poor. He's sort of learned his lesson. But it's very interesting, this idea that what is killing their children is the vengeance of God, and that the poor, the widows, the orphans, the people that they have oppressed, have a kind of power of vengeance by mobilizing this supernatural force. On the one hand, this is a regular old story. People, when they have faced are faced with um, difficult situations, often pray, uh, often promise, make some sort of deal. Get me out of this, oh Lord, and I will, A, never do it again, B, uh, do something else, uh, uh, C, I'll be really grateful. And uh, sometimes it appears to work, and sometimes it doesn't. But it is a perfectly understandable uh, emotion. But the belief that supernatural forces affect politics. The belief in the political leaders themselves, the knowledge that they are evil, and that God has, at least for a while, permitted this evil, uh, is very, very uh, powerful and very, very uppermost in the mind of even an uneducated uh, and, as Gregory himself demonstrates, normally thoroughly unscrupulous character like Fredegund. So what makes a good ruler, according to Gregory? <coughs> Not peacefulness, since he believes the job of the ruler is to inflict fear, at the minimum, and damage, more likely. At one point he describes Theodobert, uh, uh, one of the suds of Clovis, one of the members of the second generation, the closest thing <coughs> he has to a good ruler. He says of Theodebert, he ruled his kingdom justly. Respected his bishops, was liberal to the churches, relieved the wants of the poor, and distributed many benefits with piety and goodwill. So he is a just ruler and an effective one, but after that, all of his good qualities uh, amount to treating the church well and treating the poor well, and the church is supposed to represent. So in the remainder of the time, we should consider what is the church? What do we mean by the church? Any questions so far? The church in this society is represented by bishops and monasteries. We will be talking about monasteries next week. The difference is that bishops rule from cities, even if they are just little shell remnants of Roman cities. Nevertheless, they, they rule from a population center. They are involved with ordinary people, or at least their administrative apparatus deals with regular life. Monasteries are more a retreat from regular life, where monks, as you'll read in the Rule of Saint Benedict, live in a kind of isolated community renouncing the world. Now, in actual practice, there would be more similarities than differences, particularly as these (coughs) monasteries were involved with the world quite a lot. But it is the bishops that represent, to the extent that any aspect of society does, a continuation of the Roman order, a continuation of the notion that there is a kind of educated ruler of local society. So the bishops are members of prominent families. They're often members of Roman prominent families. Remember that Gregory was Bishop of Tours. The great relic of Tours was the Cape of Saint Martin. His family had been bishops of Tours because they were locally prominent under the Roman Empire and continued this prominence under the Merovingians. Not necessarily peaceful or easily. As I said, Chilperic tried to have him deposed, Uh, and you've seen the episode in which uh, they don't get along very well. But nevertheless, his family of what he calls senatorial rank, even though there's no senate anymore, uh, were locally quite uh, prominent. This relic that they guard is not the only reason for their power, but bishops as well as monks are associated with some kind of saint protector. And the saint protects churches that have relics of the saint. A relic could be a bone, like an arm or a jaw. Or it could be a piece of clothing associated with a saint. In the case of Saint Martin, Saint Martin was a military figure whose uh, most famous act of piety was he was he, uh, stopped by a beggar while on horseback. And he, um, he split his cloak with a sword and gave part of it to clothe this, uh, uh, this beggar. And this uh, relic itself, the cloak or a kappa, Uh, was held by the Church of Saint Martin of Tours. And indeed, it is uh, thought that the word chapel comes from the word for cape, sort of a sacred space within a church where in uh, this era, relics would have been kept. We'll talk a lot about relics and why they are powerful. But for now, I do want to talk about the mobilization of sacred power. Because we don't have to ask the question, you know, well, did it really work? Did this really happen? Uh, uh, Did uh, St. Martin really revenge himself on people who plundered lands belonging to him? The important thing is to realize that the conception of the saint is not merely that of a pious respect, but of fear of a uh, living presence. Somebody who, although dead, is not dead in the normal understanding of the word dead. The bishops and monks mobilize a kind of locus of sacred power. Now, uh, again at 2 AM, after you were done thinking that Gregory was a fool, it may have occurred to you that this sounds a lot like polygamy. This seems to multiply deities. It seems to multiply the sites, the places, where the sacred has an effect. And shame on you for such a thought. How can this be polygamous? Just because there seem to be a bunch of different people wielding sacred power. um, We don't have to deal with this. Certainly, there seem to be a lot of people, most of them not alive, wielding sacred power. And it's a rather threatening kind of power at that. The bishop is a religious leader. Some of them are religious leaders in the sense of powerfully religious forces. But most of them are more squires than preachers, that is They are landowners, patrons, uh, more or less generous to the poor or to the people of the area that they rule. It's not a religion of deep introspection. We don't have a lot of mystical thinkers in the sixth century. We don't have a whole lot of ethical concern except for the notion of the poor as a um, collection of people with certain rights to the ear of God. The poor does not mean exactly what it means now, the marginal, the people below some kind of income level. It means basically ordinary people without any particular unusual power in society. In certain respects, the Church is an aspect of the power of the kings. In certain respects, it defies the kings. Gregory himself and his work is full of other examples of bishops who stand up to the ruler and remonstrate with the ruler, that is, scold the ruler. But they can't really do this by themselves. They have to mobilize at least the potentiality of a kind of power uh, that goes beyond merely the prestige of their family or the prestige of their office. So for example, and again this is something that's not in the Murray edition, uh, an example of the power of Saint Martin. This is at a monastery, the Monastery of Lot, where some other relics of Saint Martin are kept. A force of hostile troops approached and prepared to cross the river, um, which runs by, so that they might loot the monastery of Lot, L-A-T-T-E. Lotte, but I think it's pronounced Lot. This is the monastery of Saint Martin, cried the monks. You Franks must not cross over here. Most of those who heard this were filled with the fear of God and so withdrew. Oh, 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 uh, I just thought it was a regular old monastery, sorry. Twenty of their number, however, who did not fear God, had no respect for the blessed saint. And they climbed into the boat and crossed the river. And driven on by the devil himself, they slaughtered the monks, damaged the monastery, and stole its possessions. They made the you know, gold and silver chalices, all of these uh, properties that they had taken into bundles and piled on their boat. Then they pushed off into the stream, (coughs) but the keel began to sway to and fro, and they were carried round and round. They lost their oars, which might have saved them. They tried to to reach the bank by pushing the butts of their spears into the bed of the river, but the boat split apart. They were all pierced through by the points of their own lances. They were killed by their own javelins. Only one of them remained unhurt, a man who had rebuked the others for what they were doing. If this, anyone thinks this happened by chance, let him consider the fact that one innocent man was saved among so many who were doing evil. After their death, the surviving monks retrieved the corpses from the bed of the river. They buried the dead bodies and replaced their own mo- possessions in their monastery." Okay, So this is what happens to people who plunder monasteries. On the one hand, the story is useful for the fact that they plunder monasteries anyway. And without asking the question, did their boat really sink, uh, we can see a notion of the violence of society being directed to illegitimate ends and then being punished by the church. In terms of the question that we have been asking, what held society on page 26, he tells us that the brothers were endowed with great courage and had considerable military resources. Once again, their power is directed more for good than for bad, and a lot of their power for bad is merely directed at each other. He considers them, in other words, appropriate rulers for savage times. At one point, uh, two of the brothers make war against a third, specifically Childebert and Theodoric against Clothar. Clothar is the guy who has just been depicted by Gregory as the tough one, the one who killed the two nephews. And yet not oh, he's also an adulterer, and yet faced with his brother's armies, he prays to God, and his mother, Queen Clotilda, prays to Saint Martin. So powerful are these prayers that the two brothers are unsuccessful. A hailstorm pelts their troops, spares Clothar, and Clothar is victorious. The brothers do not succeed in dislodging them. Here, then, we have the power of the Merovingians and the limitations on that power. The limitations are partly military, partly that of fratricidal intrigue, of people getting killed, but they're also partly supernatural. And as you read further into the grandsons of Clovis, people whom Gregory himself has dealings with, (coughs) particularly the wayward uh, Chilperic, you'll see rulers that Gregory considers to be evil. And rulers who are really falling away from the example. But what interests us in our readings for next week is the nature of this society. What's holding it together if its rulers are so violent? Why isn't it not why is it not just falling apart into fragments and shattering? How could this dynasty rule over a polity for um, something on the order of 250 years. Uh, Have fun with the papers. Have fun with Gregory. And we'll talk uh, next week. Thanks.